Hey, welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast. For all of quarter one, all the way through Easter, we are in an in-depth study through the back half of the Gospel of John on the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. For many, the cross sits on the periphery of their minds and lives, but we are persuaded that the cross must be front and center for both our belief and the formation of our behavior as followers of Jesus. We're praying for you. Hope you learn a lot. Enjoy. If you need anything, reach out to info at sdneighbors.church. We're going to be in John uh, 21, verses 1 through 19. Afterward, Jesus appeared, appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got, got into the boat, but that night they got caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with the fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you, went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this is to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. 
You guys grab your seats. Let's pray. As always, I'd invite you just to take a deep breath into your belly. We are an embodied, worshiping people. Not just brains in a jar, not souls trapped in flesh, but heart, mind, body, and soul. Another deep breath into the belly. Spirit of God, make us present to each other as we breathe. Gift of life. Come, transform. Each of us, Lord, in our respective places, points of pain, frustration, fear, hope, joy, make us like Jesus. Make us one with each other, one with you, and may we be full of faith in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when we think about the hero versus villain stories that kind of fill our cultural imagination, each of us have our personal favorites. There's the Avengers, there's Superman, there's Wonder Woman, there's Spider-Man, there's Batman. I, myself, being a child of the late 80s, I still think that He-Man, She-Ra, and Thundercats could take them all in an alley fight. But no matter which we hold in highest esteem, no matter which hero we kind of look to as our exemplar, the characters that we have a really soft spot for are the villains who have turned toe at the end of their villainry, repented, and been transformed. Think about it. These characters are all over our stories. Now, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen any of these things, it's kind of on you at this point, okay? (laughs) The newest Spider-Man, No Way Home, it's literally a deep dive exploration into modern psychotherapy's acknowledgement that villains don't need to be killed, they need to be cured. (laughs) For you Harry Potter fans, how much fun was it when you realized Severus Snape? He was the best of the best all along. And it 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 was Dumbledore's plan. Insane. And we love him all the more for it. Now, for you Gen Z kids, I knew the minute that my kids sucked me into the last airbender, that Prince Zuko was going to discover that firebending was based on light and life, not on hatred. (laughs) And maybe one of the most iconic scenes in cinematic history, Vader turns on Palpatine, tosses him to his death, sacrificing his life for his own son, and then redemption unfolds as Vader says to Luke, take my helmet off so I can see you one last time with my own eyes. Now go, my son, leave me. No, you're coming with me, Luke says. I won't leave you here. I've got to save you. You already have, Luke. You were right. You were right about me. Tell your sister you were right. I mean, we just love this stuff. Why do we eat this stuff up? Why are these moments of the villain turned and transformed so potent for us as we watch these movies. I would propose it's because in our most raw and honest moments, we will all acknowledge honestly that there's something off in each of us that we wish wasn't off. There are things about us that we are too prevalently aware that are wrong. In fact, there are moments where we realize, I think I may be part of the problem in this cosmic story. I think I might have an evil part to play in the pain and the problems that I see unfolding in the world and in my personal life, and I want that transformed. And so we try to transform it. And yet the failures and the manipulations, the unintentional and the intentional moments of villainliness continue to beset us. Self-help strategies, 
cognitive behavioral therapies, positive thought practices, and sheer effort of will. They get us somewhere, but they can only get us so far. Ultimately, the transformation that we are all longing for always tends to fall short. The villain within never seems to be fully redeemed. The closing credits never seem to come about in our lives with that beautiful theme music. And so our villain-turned-hero redemption stories, they give us hope. And the reason they give us hope is because they are the echoes of the truest story of salvation and transformation laid out through the teachings and life of Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it is the pinnacle of God's universe-altering, recreation project-launching, sin-forgiving, soul-saving, total transformation-producing act of grace. And it is offered to all the world as a gift to merely be received. Our transformation is not contingent upon our self-help strategies or our positive thought practices or sheer effort of will. Our transformation is contingent upon our response to the cross of Jesus. So we can continue in our futile attempts to find and to bring about true change, but the reality is true transformation, as laid out in the story of the gospel, comes through humble gratitude and a joyful reception of the cross's finished work on our behalf. The Bible summarizes that humble gratitude and that joyful response in one word, repentance. It's a good old Bible word, repentance. Repentance is the part that we play in God's grand transformation project. Now, for some of us with any sort of religious upbringing or in a religious context, repentance for you may be conjuring images of a dejected soul, heavy laden with unbearable loads of guilt and shame, beating ourselves into submission with cries of remorse, begging mercy from a God who's just ready to drop the hammer on us at any moment. Now, no doubt, in some respects, parts of the dejected soul imagery And the word remorse, that certainly captures a piece of what repentance is, but it is by no means the whole. Both the Hebrew and the Greek words translated repent in our English Bibles, they simply mean to turn from a direction that one was traveling in and turn in the exact opposite direction and go the other way. Sin does severe damage. And we are to be remorseful and feel the guilt of that sin. And that is a good thing. But God, our God, is gentle. Our creator is kind. And his intent for you this morning is to welcome you for the sake of restoration, not a beating. God loves us as children. His compassions are unending towards us. His goodness is fully directed upon you right now in this moment. God's whole being is committed not to our harm and separation, but to our healing and reconciliation to him. As we'll see in the coming weeks, the brutality of the cross is actually a mark of God's radical generosity and the lengths that he will go to to love us and to have us. Now, St. Paul was clear in the book of Romans about humanity's need for repentance. But he emphasized that sinner's true motivation for turning to God 
wasn't fear of his wrath and anger, but his kindness. Romans 2.4, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness, his kindness, is intended to lead you to repentance. And so patience, love, kindness, mercy, grace, it is these things that compel you, dear soul, today to turn and go a different direction, to humbly receive with gratitude and respond to the cross, turning from sin to God in faith and in obedience. Therefore, in this frame, repentance is actually a joy-producing process that we as apprentices of Jesus don't fear. We treasure it and we rejoice in it because repentance is the means by which we become what God always intended us to truly be. Now, let's make something very, very clear this morning. God's love for you and I is unconditional. It is pure. It is unalterable. God's love is upon every millimeter of all of creation. And God's love is utterly and absolutely, non-negotiably transformational. Our culture in this current cultural moment loves the idea of love, talks about love, rallies around love, but resists the notion that love must transform by its very nature. The secular definition of love is to accept ourselves and others exactly where we are without any change. Treat yourself. (laughs) Self-care, self-help, accept yourself as you are. These are all mantras that are rooted in the pain of a people who are uncomfortable with who we are and alleviating that pain by saying, I will just be as I am and believe that I am loved as I am without any need for transformation. This is a categorically opposite definition of God's love. God's love is love because it will not leave you and I unchanged. Biblically speaking, love is love because Love is love because it has an effective, transforming power to restore our souls to right relationship with self, with each other, with creation, with God himself. Now, let's go a thousand years back. The spiritual masters of antiquity, they talked about stages of the Christian life. And they talked about how God works his transforming recreation project in us and through us via repentance Classic Christian spiritual tradition has observed four stages of transformation that we as humans walk through through the course of our journey with Jesus. Awakening, purgation, illumination, and union. Awakening, purgation, illumination, and union. These stages are moving the soul progressively by degree from its separation and alienation from God's self-creation and the other to full oneness with self, God, creation, and the other in the likeness of Jesus. We like to say God is making you more fully yourself. You are becoming more truly you in Jesus. Now, some brief explanations on each stage. Awakening. Awakening occurs in the soul. When we encounter and respond at some point, we realize I am not like Jesus in this moment. That's an awakening moment. It's like our eyes are opened and we realize, I have been very off in this area. I have been very off in this belief. I am very far from Jesus right now. 
This is an issue, and I'm coming to realize this issue is sin, and I need to turn from it. Awakening. Purgation. Purgation is the process wherein the soul begins to yield its areas of guilt and shame and disobedience and unlikeness to Jesus through acts of honest and transparent confession, through acts of submission, and through acts of turning in obedience. Purgation cleanses the soul and invigorates this purity of faith. Purgation intensifies conformity to the way of Jesus. Thirdly, illumination. Illumination is the appearance. It's the ongoing growth and emergence in the outward behaviors in the world of Jesus' likeness in a believer. Illumination is this enhancement and amplification of obedience in all areas of life. In illumination, we begin to see more and more clearly in every rhythm of life the way that Jesus is healing our internal psychologies, our belief structures, and transforming our outward behaviors. And then finally, the fourth stage, union. Union occurs when a soul experiences a completeness or a wholeness in relationship with God, where the whole of the self, the whole of the will, is surrendered and in order with God's will, and with God himself. Now, these four stages aren't linear and chronological. These are not four stages to your best life now. (laughs) This is not a sophisticated self-help program where we're just going to walk through these four stages and knock it all out in our journals in one day. The stages, they're a matrix. They're a constellation of moments and events that we move in and out of from one to the other, back and forth, but always in ever greater degrees of transformation. And this goes on for the whole of our lives. So for the rest of our time this morning, we're just going to be exploring only the first two stages, awakening and purgation. At a later teaching about five weeks from now, we'll look into illumination and union from the life of Peter. But for this morning in Peter's restoration story, awakening and purgation. You guys in? You guys on board? Okay, let's do it. Awakening begins our transformation. As we arrive in our scene that Micah read for us, Peter is reeling from having been betrayed or from having betrayed his best friend and his king. We remember the story. Peter was promised by Jesus, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter in his bravado, I'll never deny you. I'll die with you, Jesus. A little girl asks him, do you know Jesus? Weren't you hanging out with him? No, I don't even know him. A Roman soldier, do you know Jesus? No, I don't. Three times over, and then the rooster crows, and Peter crumples under the weight of his failure. Peter, post-failure, returned to fishing, full most likely of guilt and remorse, which are marks of a repentant heart. Guilt and remorse are marks of a repentant heart. And everything began to change. Awakening began with Peter when Jesus shows up on the shores of his life again. I'm certain that Peter's shame at this point as he's out there fishing was probably convincing him that his life was over, that there was no hope. The Messiah was dead. He had denied him. And this, friends, at the bottom of the barrel, rock bottom, is where Jesus loves to show up and wake us up from our shameful sleep to see that he is always present, always good, and always coming after us no matter what we have done. God always comes to us in these moments with questions. Like a gentle alarm clock, the spirit or the community or a sermon on Sunday morning begins to rouse questions from the deeps with these Guys in the story, hey, do you guys have any fish? (laughs) 
translation to modern day San Diego, how's your life going? How's the fruit of your life? How's your sense of purpose? How's it going for you without me? How's your anxiety levels? How's your depression? How's your anger levels? How's your lust? How's your addictions? And then Jesus directs from that moment. He gives them instructions to fish on the right side of the boat, and they begin to bring in the fish by droves, 153 to be exact. There's no end of commentary on what that word or on what that number 153 means. I wish I could get into it. People come up with the craziest ideas. Let's move on. (laughs) Their eyes were opened in this moment. Questions are asked, and their eyes are opened, and they know it's Jesus. And when Peter realizes that's Jesus over there speaking to me, awakening me in my shame, in my guilt, in my remorse, in my failure, it's as if Peter was awakened now to a hope that there was still going to be more, that he was not abandoned, that he could be close to Jesus again. And Peter's response is the response of repentance, and it is the response that we must all have through the course of our entire life at every awakening moment. Peter dove in literally to the presence of Jesus. Verse 7 of John 21. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said, It's the Lord! And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Awakening occurs when we see ourselves. It's as if Peter suddenly could see himself as he truly was. Awakening occurs when we see ourselves as we truly are, and we see God as he truly is. We come to grips with where we actually are in the cosmic reality between God and self. And even more importantly, we come to grips with who we are in that moment, broken, ashamed, remorseful, guilty. Awakenings make us aware that we need transformation, that we aren't quite who we should be in the moment. Robert Mulholland writes, holistic spiritual awakening is a two-sided experience. It is an encounter with the living God. It is also an encounter with our true self. It is coming to see something of ourselves as we are and coming to see something of God as God is. A couple thoughts on Peter's awakening and ours. Number one, first, awakenings come when we feel the most exposed, the most broken, and the most vulnerable. Not when we feel the most put together, in control, with a happy, slappy smile on our face. If you feel broken, worn out, messed up today, awakening. Scared, confused, heavy laden with anxiety, awakening. Financially uncertain, relationally uncertain, socially uncertain, awakening. John notes that Peter actually had to wrap himself up in clothing to dive into the water. Some ancient fishermen would actually fish naked in case they needed to dive into the water quickly. And so Peter here was physically exposed and vulnerable, but more importantly, he was raw and vulnerable and naked in his failure and rejection of Jesus. What John is doing here, very sophisticated author. He's replaying the original garden scene where Adam and Eve discovered that they were naked after they had sinned. And God came to them just like Jesus came to these guys asking questions, what have you done? And they tried to clothe themselves. Awakening brings us to grips, friends, with our vulnerability and our exposure and our rawness before God. There's no hiding our sin. There's no justifying or excusing. We're just aware that this issue, this thing, this this whatever, it's wrong. And we're also aware that God is near us, that God sees us and that God is calling us to himself, not in anger, but in kindness. Number two, second thought, Peter didn't come as he dove into the water 
with a long list of excuses for his betrayal of Jesus. He just dove in to get close to Jesus, which is exactly what Shua opened us up with in worship. Peter didn't say, I need to get right first, then I'll go to Jesus. He didn't say, I need to fix things. He just went to be with Jesus. And over and over and over in our lives, in every area, Jesus will show up on the shore and he will reveal that something is off where we're not currently right. And we are to just dive into his presence. Now, these awakening moments, they can be dramatic and radical and sudden, or they can be slow and gradual. Our sin is revealed, our separation from Jesus is felt, our unlikeness to him is seen unclearly, and Jesus invites us not to flee from him in fear, but to immerse ourselves in his love and forgiveness. Our awakenings are times to dive in and draw closer. How? The basics, the Christian life that we are all trying to live together in prayer, in Bible study, in Sabbath, in community, in fasting, in feasting, in all the practices of the Christian life. In these times of exposure, raw, vulnerable, guilt, shame, remorse, we press into these practices. And as an encouraging aside, when God begins to do an awakening work across a broad population, we call it revival. We are praying for that right now. I have been praying for that alongside a community of leaders that I've just joined up with, my wife and I have, for 20 years. Almost 300 years ago now, there were revivals that burst forth on the East Coast under the likes of George Whitfield and, and uh, many other leaders. And they came to be called the first and the second great awakenings. In those stories, Jonathan Edwards, one of the primary leaders of those movements, he would write the accounts. He, he wrote the accounts of what happened in these awakenings. He wrote about what killed those awakenings too. In those awakenings, people in droves would be sitting in Sunday morning sermons and they would cry out to God for mercy. They were turning from sin. They were radically transforming and experiencing life change. In the Great Awakenings, there was this ravenous hunger for scripture and reliance upon the spirit was heartfelt and worship was powerful. I believe, many of us believe, we're seeing the, the very beginning eruptions of a third great awakening on the West Coast 300 years later. I have had so, just this past week, I've had so many conversations with young people who have been using this language of awakening. They're literally saying, I've been reading the Bible my whole life. I was raised in the church, and now all of a sudden the Bible's just like smacking me in the face. Like, whoa, I cannot get enough of this. A longing for holiness. Young people across the board, maybe in this room, literally saying, I don't want sin. I want my Savior. I want holiness, hunger for God. I believe that God is preparing us. He's coming to the shore of our lives. And the invitation is for us to dive in even more deeply. Now, purgation. Purgation purifies and empowers this awakening and this transformation. Having dove in and approached Jesus, he is invited, Peter is invited to have breakfast with Jesus. And this process of purgation unfolds in Peter's life. And friends, at this stage, the purgation stage, this is where things get real. This is where Christianity has some teeth. This is where the rubber hits the road, whatever other colloquialism fits your illustration. If awakening calls us to dive in and get close to Jesus, purgation brings our innermost being and our outward behaviors into harmony with God's will. And that experience itself is oftentimes terribly difficult and ugly. The word itself, purgation, is rooted in the idea of purging, Purging involves removal, cleansing, letting go of, expulsion. Our bodies, our physical bodies, purge things all the time to stay healthy. It can be gradual, like a nice cup of detoxifying tea, 
or our rhythmic trips to the bathroom, sorry, Sunday morning, it's, it's true, or violent, like throwing up some food poisoning. No matter how it gets out, for health in the physical body, bad stuff has to be purged, removed. Now, the spiritual masters, they observed stages and degrees of intensity within the process of purgation. The most violent and intense forms of purgation usually begin at the beginning of a believer's life. This is when the Holy Spirit shows up in force, and there's like this full renunciation of all the blatant points of disobedience. This is what the, the desert mothers and fathers called these blatant points of disobedience, gross sins. The gross sins get repented of. Now, Paul had a list of these gross sins. Actually, he had multiple lists of these gross sins. In all of his letters, you'll find these lists of various gross sins that at the very beginning of our lives, the Holy Spirit calls us to renounce. For example, in the book of Corinthians, Paul writes, don't you know that wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then this turn, this transformation. But this is what some of you were. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. When we read through these lists... The tragic and I would say terrifying irony of Western Christianity is that we read the list of sexual sins and we're like, for sure, obvious, need to be repented of. While we tend to almost promote slandering, have any of you had political conversations lately? We tend to just ignore greed. Let me ask you, American Christian, do you feel like you have enough right now? These are gross sins that malform us. Awakening, purgation, difficult. The early stages of purgation can be so disorienting. I remember as a brand new Christian being terrified walking into churches that if anyone found out about my kind of drugged up, drunken sexual past, that for sure I'd be struck with lightning and kicked out. I was convinced. Now, of course, I wasn't. But what Jesus was doing in those times of fear and remorse and guilt and shame was he was purging me of that over-sexualized, addicted, and very wild lifestyle outside of his will. And it felt overwhelming, friends, because the entire inertia of my life was being reversed in the course of a year. So as time goes on, Jesus takes us deeper. He makes us not only aware of the gross sins, blatant disobedience, but then slowly over our lifetime, we become more and more aware of unconscious sins. We're made, of these little, we're made aware of these little incongruities in our lives that are misaligned with the will of God, little areas of small rebellion or lacks of surrender. He doesn't reveal everything all at once. He does it gradually in a progression. Uh, one 17th century spiritual trainer said this, a traveler marching across a vast plain sees nothing ahead of him but a slight rise in the distant horizon. When he tops this rise, he finds a new stretch of country as vast as the first. Thus, in the way of self-renunciation, we think we see everything all at once. We think we're holding nothing back and that we're not clinging to ourselves or anything else. But in the daily round, God constantly shows us new countries, finding in our hearts a thousand things which we would have sworn were not there. So this is what Jesus is doing with Peter in his breakfast conversation. Jesus has Peter, in the process of purgation, relive his denials three times over as he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? 
What Jesus was doing was purging Peter's heart into the deeps, getting into the layers. He was showing Peter where Peter thought he was committed, but he wasn't. He was revealing to Peter his weaknesses, his cowardice, his inabilities, his manipulations, his self-governed vision of life over and over and over. Jesus made him relive his rejections, not out of cruelty, friends, but out of kindness to bring transformation. Anglican priest Rowan Williams says that the human tendency is to be distracted from our truest story and to avoid and ignore the parts that we find unbearable. He writes, we need to know what we have done in all its dimensions. We need to fully grasp the reality about ourselves, the dark truths that we find it easier to forget. My counselor used to tell me, what you don't name and title will control you. Purgation brings to the very surface names and titles for things that you didn't think were there. And that's where Jesus took Peter. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And notice, Peter was hurt. It hurt him because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This process hurt Peter. It was painful because it was reducing him to the deepest truth about himself before his God, namely, that Jesus and Jesus alone knows the depths of Peter's heart and that Peter could no longer rely on his self-defined vision of life, no longer rely on himself, could no longer even trust his own knowledge of his own heart. This is how deeply Jesus was taking him. And Peter's response is, Lord, you know the deepest parts of me. You know the nooks and the crannies that I don't even know. And that, my friends, is the key to transformative repentance in the process of purgation. If purgation is having its way with us, it will lead to a yieldedness and a total surrender. Peter's response, even in his pain, is not more shame, not more guilt, not more covering. He just says to Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Peter's response revealed a heart that wasn't fleeing in the pain but confessing in raw truth. And really, you see Peter's purity of desire here. He simply says to, to Jesus, I love you, Jesus. You know I love you. You know that I want to love you. That's raw. That's vulnerable. That's pure. I am increasingly convinced that the deconstruction we're seeing happening in this cultural moment in the church today is actually in part God's purgation process collectively, culturally, and personally, individually. Those deconstructing just need space to barf it out. And we good Christians that have it all together think that when somebody starts vomiting, they shouldn't, it should like smell good and look right. And so we like kind of keep people that are purging and people that are like deconstructing kind of on the fringe. Well, they just need to pray more. Well, they just need to read this book. Well, they just need to have more faith. And they're just... They need to be allowed to, like a baby, just throw it up. And mature Christians, like with babies, need to be there to clean it up. The church must be a safe place for people to be purgated, deconstructed, whatever word you want to put onto it. And the reason is deconstruction, purgation, it deals with the deepest trust structures of our being. What purgation does and what happened to Peter was we are no longer allowed, we are no longer able to trust in society or its narratives, in cultural narratives and expertise, in experts, in the world. 
Purgation brings us to a place where we can't even trust ourselves. It reduces us to this full and surrendered trust in Jesus alone. And that painful, raw process is what leads to transformation. Peter was utterly transformed. He was a changed human. He was more Peter after this breakfast than he was before. In the very famous fantasy books on, uh, by C.S. Lewis on the mythical world of Narnia, which we all love, the character Eustace in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the movie messes this up. You need to read the books. But Eustace in Dawn Treader, he illustrates the pain and the pleasure and the transformation of purgation. Eustace Scrub, we all remember him, selfish little brat, complaining, manipulative. He's greedy. He comes into a dragon's lair. He finds gold. He puts the dragon's wristband on, and he's turned into a literal dragon. And there's so much pain because the wristband is too small in his dragon body, and he's just in agony. And then Aslan, the lion Christ figure, comes to Eustace, and he leads him to this large well of crystal water, and there's these marble steps going down into it. And Eustace thinks to himself, if I can just get into that water and bathe off the scales, the pain will stop, and I'll go back to being myself. And yet, no matter how many layers of dragon skin Eustace is able to peel off of himself, he remains a dragon. And then Eustace, in the book, goes on and describes the scene this way. It'll be on the screens for you. The lion said, I don't know if he spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever pe picked the scab off of a sore place, it hurts like Billy O, but it's such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Awakening, purgation, repentance, friends, sometimes it'll feel like the claw of the Holy Spirit is going deep to the heart, but you must trust the kindness of the king who is tearing off the false self. For some, you may feel like you're losing your deepest belief structures in this season. Some of your longest held desires and dreams will feel like they are being torn to shreds by the, by the lion. But in the end, we must believe that this process is returning us to our truest selves in God. He is transforming, turning toe, redeeming the villain. It is the process of the story that we all long for the most. And so as we close and come to communion this morning, Joshua, you can come up, and Sarah and Katie, you guys can come up for communion this morning. One of the things that we're going to reinstate here at Neighbors as COVID continues to kind of slope down is we're going to go back to handing out communion. We're just going to be handing out, you know, the little plastic cup things, which are not my favorite, but it is what it is. And we want to invite you to come forward to take communion. Now, one of the things that makes the Holy Spirit's claw truly get into the heart is not only confession to Jesus, 
but it's confession within a community of people. And communion is always a beautiful time to come before the community of Jesus and confess that which has been turning us into dragons. And so as we come to the cross, what we must remember, the the way that we are able to truly confess is we see that Jesus took the ultimate claw of death into himself. The separation that some of us are feeling, if we were to confess, we feel like we would be separated from the people we love or separated from God himself. Jesus took that separation into himself. The shame that some of us are feeling, that's the exposure where God is coming to us. And at the cross, Jesus was stripped in the ultimate way, stripped naked physically, stripped naked spiritually, to absorb our shame so that we would be reclothed in his righteousness. Jesus was deformed in death in the ultimate way for our reformation and transformation in the resurrection. And so for our time this morning, all that is needed to be done today is to respond. Respond. Respond to the kindness of God who has maybe come to you and has revealed an area of your life, something that he is saying, I'm going to have to unclothe you. I'm going to have to take that off. And it, it, it's terrifying. It's overwhelming. And yet, if you will just lay down and let him do it, in this process of purgation, this process of repentance, let him take you deep into your motivations, your trust structures, and release them unto him in faith and in worship, you will come away uh, a little kid again, renewed, restored, made right. And we'll do this over and over for the rest of our lives until we all finally pay the consequence of our own sin and we go into graves and we resurrect according to his promise over and over, awakening, purgation, illumination, one day, full union, everlasting, never-ending, forever union in perfection.